And in light of that, let me have you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, please. Luke chapter 1, as we move through this Advent season, as we light the candles, we've been reminding ourselves of those familiar themes, hope, peace, joy, love next week. Um, And we know them, they're familiar to us, but they're so easily forgotten, so easily overshadowed by whatever circumstance we might be going through, or maybe just the general busyness of this time of year. Um, The fact is that these things aren't just lighted candles and themes for Christmas. These are gracious gifts that God has given his people. Can you just imagine for a moment being people whose lives are characterized by hope and by peace and by joy and by love? That would make us so very different from the world, but more than that, what a blessed way to live. I think there's a longing built into us to live consistently in those things. And that's what we remind ourselves of during this season, that it's not just kind of a far-off hope for somewhere, someday, maybe in heaven, we'll actually get these things. It's the reminder that through the work of Christ, the birth of Christ, His life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, the promise of His coming again, all of that means that these things are not only real possibilities, these are expectations for the Christian life. There are things that we can actually anticipate God doing in our life right now. And with that in mind, we've been working through why those things are possible. And last week, we talked about peace. We talked, first of all, about vertical peace, the idea that the God of all creation would make a way for there to be peace between He and mankind who are at war with Him. That the armies of heaven shattered the silence outside of Bethlehem that night, and they cried out to those shepherds, that there would be peace among men with whom God is well pleased. But how can a holy God be pleased with sinful men and women? The answer is lying in the manger. Jesus Christ, all that he would do, all that he was, sinless, perfect, spotless lamb who would bear the wrath of God against sin poured out on the sinless son. That he would take our place And that he would then give us his righteousness, his goodness. He takes our sin, we take his perfection, and we become sons and daughters of God. It's a remarkable thing that actually puts us at real peace. The only peace that matters through eternity. But because of that vertical peace, we're also able to have horizontal peace. Peace here and now on this earthly kind of plane of existence. Peace in our circumstances. Uh, Not because circumstances are easy. Circumstances might very well still be difficult, painful, heartbreaking, joyful, that whole range of the human experience. But we can have peace in the midst of that, not because they're not difficult, but because we know the God who holds those circumstances in his hand. And if God is everything that we say he is, if he is sovereign, absolutely in control of every detail, if he is omnipotent, all-powerful, able to do whatever he wills, if he is omniscient and he knows every potential outcome if he is good if he is love if he is merciful if he is all those things that we seem to sing about him being then how could we be anything but at peace in our circumstances knowing that that's the god who not only controls them but is using them for our eternal good Not only do we get to be at peace in our circumstances, but we can be at peace with other people, as impossible as that might seem. Sinners can live at peace with God and at peace with one another. Sinners can live at peace with each other in the church because we're bound together through Christ. We have that commonality, that unity that God puts in us because there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Holy Spirit that indwells His people. We can live at peace even when we disagree with each other. 
even when we have different preferences, different ideas, different perspectives on things, because we're called to be a people who are quick to forgive, who are constantly laying down our lives for the good of others, who constantly see the needs of others as more important than ourselves. And those heart attitudes of humility and meekness, they drive peace within the body of Christ. But it gets even better because we're not only called and able to be at peace with one another, not only called and enabled to be at peace with people who have the same heart conviction and gospel transformation that we do, we can be at peace with those that hate us. Maybe not from the world's perspective or definition of peace. We can't make people like us. We can't make people be nice to us. But we have the option to respond biblically and obediently to people that desire and move toward conflict with us. And what does that look like? Basically, it boils down to loving those who are unlovable in most senses of the word. That's why Paul writes, don't take revenge, but bless those who persecute you. And if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him water. Meet the needs, love the person. Why? Well, because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're not loving people toward our enemies because we're so magnanimous and so generous and just so full of the Christmas spirit. We're able to love those who hate us because God has demonstrated that kind of love toward us, which we'll probably talk about next week when we talk about love. But that does bring us to peace, even in the times of persecution and hatred. And this week, we're going to look at joy. And not necessarily joy in circumstances, although joy in circumstances is, again, possible and expected and the anticipated result of being a believer found in Jesus Christ. But I want to remind us of some of those foundational truths that bring us back to joy in the first place. So if you're not there already, find your way to Luke chapter 1. And I'm going to read in verse 68 through 71 to kind of open our time together. This is in Zechariah's prophecy. John the Baptist's father, as he looks on his newborn son, Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Let's pray. Lord, we're a people that seek after and even sometimes war for these things. We make war so that there might be peace. We work hard so that we might have hope in something. Uh, we fight to maintain happiness and call it joy. Lord, so often we look for these things in our own strength and in earthly things. God, I pray that you would help us to find our satisfaction, our hope, our peace, our joy only in you because that's where true hope, peace, joy, and love are found. And so, Lord, as we open up your word, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our blinded eyes shatter our hard, cold, stubborn hearts, and help us to see wonderful things from your word. Help us to see the truth about who you are and what you've done. And then, God, help us to respond rightly in obedience and worship. Bring us back to joy, real joy, not in a season, not in a person, not in a situation, but real joy that is wholly wrapped up and bound in who you are. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes it can even be hard for us to define joy. We know kind of what it looks like. We know what it's not. We, we say, well, does the Christian 
having joy mean that when the unthinkable happens, the unimaginable happens, when the disaster strikes, does that mean we're the people who have this plastered on smile and at least appear happy in all of these circumstances? And the answer is obviously no. Uh, there's a time for weeping and a time for mourning, and tears are entirely appropriate sometimes. We know that joy is not fake or at least it shouldn't be. We know that joy isn't necessarily happiness, although they're related. We know that joy isn't exactly happiness um, because happiness is maybe more circumstantial. But what is joy? Well, it is happiness. It is gladness. It is it's satisfaction. Joy is this deep abiding sense of wholeness and rejoicing and pleasure that has nothing to do with circumstances, and once again, everything to do with the one who holds circumstances. But the question then is, if that's the case, if that's what joy is, and if Christians are people who are supposed to produce and have joy and who have the opportunity to have joy, why is it so much easier for us to let circumstances dictate our joy than for us to produce joy in all of our circumstances? And the answer is, like most things, we forget we are a people collectively and individually who have a difficult time maintaining a right perspective. I don't know about you, but it is so easy for me to let my eyes fall off of God and heaven and all that he's promised and fall squarely on my circumstances and how close and pressing they seem to be. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Luke 1. And in particular, that response of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, to what God had done. And before we jump in, a couple of things we need to know. First of all, uh, Zechariah is a priest, and uh, that's important for kind of where the promise gets made. And second of all, uh, he had no children. He and his wife had no children. She was barren, and they were old. Not a good combo for child rearing. And as Zechariah is doing his priestly work, uh, in the temple, an angel comes to him and makes some remarkable promises. An angel tells him that he is going to have a son and that this son of Zechariah is going to be the one that prepares the way for the Messiah, the one who would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And the angel also says that this child, when he is born, is going to bring joy and gladness and that many people are going to rejoice in his birth. This child, not Christ, but John the Baptist, his birth is going to bring a great deal of joy to Zechariah and to people. And that's kind of what we're going to unpack today is when Zechariah sees this, why does he respond with such joy? Now in the moment, as that angel is standing there, Zechariah has a hard time believing it. He says, how can I know that these things are going to be true? Apparently an angelic messenger is not convincing enough. And the angel says, this is how you're going to know, not some great sign in the cosmos, not some miraculous thing. He says, you're not going to be able to talk until he's born. So there's that, and then nine months go by, and they do, in fact, have a son. And all the people around are ready to name him Zechariah, because that's what you do. You name the child after the father, and no, no, no. Zechariah writes on a tablet, his name will be John, and at that moment, his uh, tongue is loosened, and he's able to speak. And the first words that he says in Luke chapter 1, verse 64, it says, immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. After nine months with nothing to say, the first thing out of his mouth is praise to God, and I think that is entirely appropriate. And then as we move from verse 68 on, you kind of get the content of that praise. And it's this outpouring of joy based on what God had done. And if you look at verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. That is the foundation. That is the theme of this entire praise song. That's what this is. This is another Christmas carol about joy. This is Zechariah's joyful song in response to what God has done. 
this response of praise, this song of joy, it, it all rests on God's redemption. As Zechariah thinks about his son, as he thinks about that redemption of God, uh, he finds joy in two places. First of all, uh, joy in the promises of God. And then joy in what God has provided, joy in God's provision. So he, he looks at the promises of God, and they provide joy in the provision of God, and those provide joy. So let's look at God's promises first and see where he finds joy in those. And if you look, the first reference is to David. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And hopefully you remember that it wasn't too long, it was a long time ago, but not too long ago that we started Matthew's Gospel. And Matthew's Gospel starts with a long list of names, that genealogy of the Christ. And those names are long and some of them are hard to pronounce and most of them are pretty not familiar to us. But two of them right at the beginning stand out. Because Matthew says that this is the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And we know those names. And now Zechariah, as he thinks through the birth of his son and what that means for the birth of the one who's going to come, he also connects that back to David. But why does David figure so prominently into this? How does God's promise to David bring Zechariah joy and why does it matter? Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is reigning as king over all of Israel. For the first time, there's really peace in his reign. And it's at that time that David looks around and he sees something that unsettles him a little bit. David notices that he lives in a palace, a pretty fine place to live, a place fit for a king. But the Lord God, the God of Israel, lives in a tent in that tabernacle that was given to Moses and the Israelites. It's temporary. It feels less than it ought to. And so David makes great plans, and he decides that he is going to build a house fit for the Lord. But the Lord has other plans. And through a prophet, he sends a message to David, and he says, David, you're not going to build the house for me. I'm going to build the house for you. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11, this is what he says, The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. And when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. A son of David is coming, a promised heir, and not just someone who is going to sit on a throne like all of the other kings ever have, but there is going to be one who sits on a throne that lasts who is going to rule unlike any other king that has ever been. And that promise to David is reiterated and it's clarified and it's refined through the Psalms, through the prophets, through his descendants. And we come across it as we hear familiar passages, even Christmas passages. Last week we read from Isaiah 9, For unto us a child is born, we know that, a son is given. And that child is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah says there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and that he will sit on the throne of his father David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. See, God had promised a very particular kind of king to come from the line of David. And as this overjoyed father, Zechariah, looks on the birth of his son, he connects those two promises. He recognizes that this son of his who will be born is going to prepare the way for the greatest king that there has ever been. 
and thinking of the faithfulness to God's promise to David, the one that he would see in his lifetime, brings him great joy because God is faithful to his promises. As we move on, look at verse 70. It says, And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And not only did God make promises to David, but God had made promises to his people through the prophets. If you read through the whole Old Testament, the kind of the narrative of the Old Testament, it is, I think, so far often separated from the bits and pieces that we get in the flannel graph that we call the Bible stories and the high points. It, it's not just stories. It's this beautiful, intricate, historical narrative of the history of God's interaction with his chosen people. It is a story of miraculous preservation. It is a story of terrible rebellion and constant faithfulness and mercy and warning and judgment. And it's, and it's all kind of encapsulated by this consistent message of the prophets that God is the one who saves. That your salvation can come from nowhere else. And in that line there, although we don't typically see it, Zechariah is actually quoting from Psalm 106. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. That comes out of Psalm 106. And at some point this week, I would recommend that you go back and you kind of read Psalm 106 because Psalm 106 that Zechariah is pulling from here that's on his heart and his mind goes over this history of Israel. And it starts out with five kind of verses of praise to God. And then it begins to recount what the people have done. It says that the people were in Egypt and they don't understand God and his wonders and yet God kind of redeems them with his mighty hand. It says that they go into the wilderness and they complain and that God judges their sin but he spares the nation. It says they make this golden calf and God judges them but he spares the nation. Once they're in the land, they worship the pagan gods of all of their neighboring countries. And eventually, God judges them and he removes them from the land entirely, but he doesn't destroy them. And then in Psalm 106, verse 44, it says this, Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. And then the psalm finishes this way, Save us, O Lord our God. Gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and to glory in your praise. Time after time, the sinful, rebellious response of the people, it absolutely should have led to their destruction. And time after time after time, God is just, but he's merciful. He continues to send his prophets to call the people back, and their message is always stop turn from your sin and come back. God is waiting like that father in the parable of the prodigal son to welcome you back if only you would turn your hearts. And God is faithful. Not because His people deserve it, but because He is faithful to all of His promises. And one of those promises, one of those promises that the prophets continually made was that someone was coming. Because at the end of the day, the people could not turn their own hearts back. Someone was coming who would redeem them. Someone who would lead them out of their bondage. Someone, as Isaiah writes, that would bear their sin and their sorrow and their grief, even though they'd gone astray. Someone by whose stripes they would be healed. 
and Zechariah looks on his son, he begins to see the culmination of those promises made to the prophets, not in his son, but in the one that his son would prepare the way for. He sees that all those promises made through all those years, through all the failures of the people, don't mean that God has failed his promise. He's about to see that they all find their substance in the one that they've been pointing to. So we see the promise to David, we see the promises to the prophets, and now we're going to come to a promise made to Abraham. Look at verse 72. And to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Abraham is the father of the Jewish race, the, the patriarch there. And again, if we're not familiar with our Old Testament, we might forget what promises were made to Abraham. Well, starting way back in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and he makes this covenant, this promise with him that centers around the three things. He says, Abraham, you and your descendants will possess a land and you'll possess it forever. So there's land. He says, not only will you possess a land, but you'll have descendants. There's this seed promise, many children. And then he promises blessing. I'm going to bless you, and I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And then there's this remarkable kind of wide promise that says, and through you, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that covenant that he made with Abraham is reiterated eight more times over Abraham's life through the book of Genesis. Over and over and over, God tells him what he would do to Abraham and through Abraham. But as great as that sounds, you come to the end of Abraham's life, and all of those promises look like they've fallen a little bit short. Because although Abraham has lived in the land that God has promised, uh, by the time of his death, Abraham owns the cave that he's buried in and the field that that cave sits in, and that's it. He's lived as a sojourner, as a traveler through that land. As far as descendants go, he has one son from that line that God had promised. Other children but only one son in that line of promise, Isaac. And as far as blessing goes, he'd been blessed, and those who opposed him were certainly cursed. Those who blessed him were certainly blessed. But there's no sense that the influence of Abraham ever left that tiny little strip of land in Palestine. But God wasn't done with the promise. God hadn't failed the promise. He reiterates that promise to Abraham's children and to their children. And so down through the generations of Israel, the people lived with this hopeful anticipation that God would finish what he had started. They live in kind of the anticipation of the culmination of that covenant. And as Zacharias now looks on his son, he sees the fulfillment of the promise. Not in his son, but in the one that his son was preparing the way for. How is it that Abraham blesses all the nations? It's through Christ, the hope of nations. And look at what he anticipates. He says, to grant to us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all of our days. That one who would come, the Messiah who would come, would free his people. But free them to what? 
not free them to pursue their own desires, not free them to celebrate political autonomy, but He would free them to serve the Lord. Serve the Lord without fear. To serve Him in holiness and righteousness. That redemption is ultimately going to lead the people to worship and service of the Lord. Not joy in absolute freedom, but joy in right relationship with God. Why, why, do we, why does that take up our, our sermon on joy? Well, because the faithfulness of God is the foundation of a joyful response. God's perfect faithfulness brought David to worship and Zechariah to worship in light of God's promises to David. God's faithfulness led the prophets to worship and obey, and it led Zechariah to worship in light of God's promises to the prophets. God's promises led Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to worship, to find joy. And it led Zechariah to find that same joy in light of God's promises to them. And as he looks at his son John, he sees those threads woven together. This is his son that an angel said would be the prophet of the Most High. For the first time in four centuries, the people are going to hear a word from the Lord spoken through a prophet. And it's not just any word. It's not just another warning. It's this, repent, because the kingdom is at hand. Not that the promise is a long way off, but now the promise is right there at the door. And with the birth of Jesus, there's not only joy in God's promises, that's why we see the joy in God's provision, the joy of what God has done. But what is it that God has provided that brings His people such great joy? Well, first of all, God has provided mercy. Look at verse 77. Zechariah talks about the child who will be a prophet of the Most High, the one who will go before the Lord to prepare His ways. In verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. The people knew about sin. The law told you about sin. It showed you the holiness of God. It showed you His perfect standard. And the law showed you how far you'd failed. And in case you didn't get it, the Pharisees made sure that the law was such a burden that you could never even come close to reaching the standard that was set. You could make yourself feel righteous, but you could never actually be righteous the way God called you to be. And if you look at what John preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, not only does he make the sin clear, this child who is going to grow is going to remind people of the forgiveness of sin. Not forgiveness because you earned it, not forgiveness because you finally met the standard of the law, but forgiveness that comes through the mercy of God. Because you could live your whole life in anticipation of those Davidic covenant promises waiting for that coming king who would restore you. You could live your whole life saturated in the prophecies of the prophets, wait, prophets waiting for the one who was going to come to redeem Israel. You could live your whole life in anticipation of that Abrahamic covenant and waiting for the one who would bless all the nations, but there's nothing in you by virtue of your birth or your nationality or your gender or your wealth or any other status that meant that just because you lived in anticipation, you could actually grab a hold of those promises. You could know about the promises and miss them completely. It's only through the perfect Lamb, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ that sin is finally dealt with. 
That's what God provides in his mercy, a way to deal with sin once and for all. In his mercy, he gave them the law that said something could die in your place, that that sin could be covered for a time, but only until the next sin, only until the next sacrifice. And now in his mercy, God is going to provide something that actually takes care of sin once and for all. We talked about peace last week. That peace that's made possible only because something has taken care of the sin that made us at war with God. And the mercy of God and the forgiveness that he brings ought to bring us great joy. Do you ever find joy in your forgiveness? Joy because the burden of legalism is done away with and you don't actually have to wonder whether you've checked enough boxes to make God like you? Joy in the freedom of knowing that you don't have to wonder whether there is a God and if there is a God, whether he cares about you at all. The gospel answers those questions. Joy because you don't have to wonder if this life has any kind of purpose or meaning, but joy in finding purpose in the God who made you and has sent you out on a mission. Joy in the fact that we don't have to wonder whether this life is all there is and there's just cold, dark blackness afterwards. Joy in knowing that we carry on for eternity and not only carry on for eternity, but hope to spend eternity with that God who made us. That mercy of God that provides for our salvation is the source and the fountain and the well of joy constantly in our lives if only we fix our eyes on it. And salvation alone should bring us great joy, but Zacharias isn't, Zachariah isn't done. He goes on to talk about God's provision of light. Look at verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. If we were to go back to Malachi, Malachi 4.2 says, Those of you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, will visit, will rise and with healing in his wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. The anticipation of the Messiah has long been referred to in the prophets as this idea of sunrise, this light breaking into darkness. Back in Isaiah 9, that's how Isaiah 9 starts, 9-2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light of light... And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. And this one that Zacharias is looking at is the one who prepares the way for the light. And maybe our minds are drawn back to John 1, where Christ is referred to not only as the Word in the beginning with God and the Word who was God, but the one who is the light, the true light that comes into the world, the light that shatters the darkness, the light that the darkness can't comprehend or overcome. And Zechariah picks up on that theme of Christ as being the one who brings light. And throughout the ministry of Jesus, that's exactly what he does. He brings light where there was darkness. Where there's sin and rebellion and absolute spiritual blindness, he opens eyes. He opens physical eyes, absolutely, but so much more eternally significant. He opens spiritually blinded eyes to see. That's why Jesus can say that he is the light of the world and that whoever follows him will not walk, walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's John 8, verse 12. I think in our minds we connect sadness with darkness and joy with light, and that's appropriate. But why? 
Because God has made us now children of the light. He has opened our eyes. You understand, one of the most joyful gifts that we've been given is the fact that we can see. You and I have this blessed ability to see, to know, understand, and perceive who God is and what He is like. We can look at this world around us and not be caught up in worshiping the creation, but we can look at the world around us and be drawn to worship the great God who made it. You and I not only know what creation tells us, that there is a God, that He is divine and that He's powerful, but we have His Word and we can read and we understand that that great God of creation loves His creation and has made a plan of redemption. So often, we walk around and we're oblivious to the joy that we ought to have simply because we know certain things. The idea that God has opened our eyes and revealed things to us, not mystical, magical things, but that He has made His Word plain to us in a way that our simple minds and hearts can understand truths about an infinite and holy and eternal God. There's joy in being enlightened and joy in having our eyes open to the truth of who God is because then that opens the truth, uh, the light of truth to who we are. Fallen, failed, absolutely. Sinful, alienated from God, absolutely. But restored. Called sons and daughters of God. The joy of knowing who you are in Christ is only possible because He's opened your eyes to see it. And in the closing words of his song there, Zechariah says, He will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He talks about peace, and I want to spend just a minute kind of bringing these things together because peace was last week. This week is joy. And sometimes we go through our Sundays, particularly on Advent Sundays, or kind of themed messages, and they all kind of just fit together in their box. We talk about hope, and then we talk about peace, and then we talk about joy, and next week we're going to be talking about, talk about love, and they don't really mix and mingle, and that's just not the case. <laughs> hope isn't over here, and peace over here, and love over here, and joy over here, and you kind of got to choose which one you're pursuing in any given moment. And when we're pursuing this one, somehow we're letting this one kind of slide off the table. The fact is that these are really just a complete picture of what the Christian life can and ought to look like. They are deeply connected and related. When we celebrate Christ, when we celebrate the birth of Christ, we're not just celebrating the birth of Christ, are we? I hope not. We celebrate the birth of Christ... Why? Because the birth of Christ is the fulfillment of God's promises that He would send a Savior into the world. But it didn't stop in the manger. We know that He lived, that He grew, that although He was tempted like we are, He never sinned, not once, a life of perfect obedience, perfectly pleasing to the Father. And yet He goes to die on a cross that He did not deserve, but that we did. And that on the cross, He takes our place. The wrath of God poured out against sin. The righteousness of Christ placed on His people. They didn't stay dead. That He rose again after three days. Risen in power and glory. Ascended back to the right hand of the Father where He ever lives to make intercession for us. We know that He's coming again. And so even as we talk about Christmas, we're not just talking about Christmas, are we? We're talking about the whole ministry of Christ the Messiah who died, rose, lives, and is coming again for us. And so how could we possibly think that we have to talk about joy and then peace and then hope and somehow keep them separated? If all of these things are wrapped up in the whole work of Christ, then the wholeness of those things is wrapped up and found together in the Christian life. 
Because it's the Gospel that brings us hope. It's the Gospel that brings us peace. It's the Gospel that brings us joy. Spoiler, it's the Gospel that impacts our celebration of love that we're going to talk about next week. That's why Paul writes in Romans 15.13, it was actually read this morning during our Advent time, Romans 15.13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Please don't miss that. You don't have to be a joyful person or a hopeful person or a peaceful person or a loving person based on what you're really pursuing and striving toward at that moment and the circumstances allow. God is pleased to produce these things in His people. They are consistently and constantly available to us. The promise of God, the celebration of Advent, reminds us that in His mercy and in His kindness, God has made all these things, again, not only possible, but the expected outcomes of the Christian life. But we only get a taste of them now, don't we? Because we still long for and wait for the fullness of all of these things. We wait for the fullness of joy. Now, the hope that we have is real. The peace that we have is real. The joy that we have is real. But in closing today, I just want to point us forward a little bit. I want to point us forward and remind us that the most perfect joy is the one we still wait for. Christmas is wonderful. And there are going to be times of great joy this season. Maybe in the gift, maybe in the family, maybe in just fellowship with other believers between services. Joy is available in all of those things. And that should bring us great joy. But all of those things should leave us kind of anticipating and longing for something more. We read Psalm 16 at the start of our service, and I want to remind you how that ends. David says, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forever. It's in the presence of God that there's fullness of joy. It's why we should anticipate joy as we do those things in the presence of God. Being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you and I should expect to find real joy in studying His Word, in pursuing obedience to what He's called us to, in fellowship and worship with His people. Because there's joy in the presence of God. We should anticipate joy when we do things that remind us of the presence of God there. And all of that is joyful. But all of it's going to be perfected when we're in His presence. At His right hand, there are pleasures forever. See, the problem with at least my joy right now is that it always seems to be under attack. I might struggle and work and think rightly and take every thought captive and I might find joy even in that difficult circumstance. What's the problem? I have to keep pursuing that. I have to keep fighting that flesh that clings to me so desperately and pursuing the joy that I know that I ought to have. You realize that someday we won't have to fight that battle anymore. Someday, not only are the circumstances going to be dealt with that seem to impact my joy, but someday, that sinful flesh that I still dwell in, it's finally done away with. And when I'm in His presence, there's fullness of joy, and at His right hand, there's going to be pleasures forever. Christmas should be joyful. Don't take anything from that. But my hope is that as you find joy in those things this Christmas, 
that it'll point you forward and maybe give you just a little bit of longing for what comes next. So how do we do that? What do we think about over these next couple of weeks? Three things. First of all, we need to be people who find our joy in God's continued faithfulness. Because maybe your Christmas is full of the promise of joy, uh, but maybe your Christmas doesn't anticipate much joy at all. Through circumstances, through relationship, through loss, through just crazy busyness, whatever it might be, uh, we need to be people that are reminded that joy is not seasonal, that joy is not a greeting card, that joy is not bound up in a time or in a place or with a person. Joy is in the continued faithfulness of God. How do we cultivate that? How do we capture that? Well, we need to be a people who consistently remind ourselves of God's faithfulness because we're forgetful. How do we do that? You read through your Bible and you mark those promises that God has made. Not promises to deliver you from circumstances, but promises to provide for your needs. Promises that the weak, the faintly burning wick, the bruised reed, he won't break, he won't snuff out. Promises to finish the good work that he started in you. And you remind yourself that God will be faithful to every promise that he's made. And because we're forgetful, at those times in our lives when God proves himself faithful, and he does, my suggestion is that you write those down. Record it, put them somewhere. We need to be a people with a consistent testimony of God's track record of faithfulness, not only in the world, not only in the word, not only in the world, but in our lives. Secondly, we need to be a people who find joy in sharing light. God has brought us from darkness into the light. We're called children of light, and he's given us this blessed privilege of sharing that light with others. Uh, John was not the light, but he came to prepare the way for the light. You and I are not the light, but we are called children of light, and Jesus said that we ought to be like salt and light. But we have a part of that light-giving ministry, that light that shines in the darkness of people's hearts. And in particular around this season and Thanksgiving and other kind of holiday times, we think about the needs of others, and rightly so. But sometimes we tend to think that our light is wrapped up in fixing circumstances, in meeting needs, and hear me, we should meet needs. Where there is a physical need, we ought to be quick to move to meet that need in our body, in our community, in the world as a whole. Where there are the weak, they should be protected. I don't take anything away from that, but we need to understand that that in and of itself isn't bringing the light that people so desperately need. Because darkness isn't removed by changing a painful circumstance or situation. The darkness is shattered by bringing the light of Christ to bear on that situation. I got to go on a field trip with my son this last week to Children's Hunger Fund, and they do an amazing job of allowing kids to encounter and interact with what real poverty looks like. And that's good and helpful for our kids that don't understand how very blessed they are. But what stuck with me most about that whole experience was the fact that the people that were taking our kids through there made it very, very clear that they exist to meet those physical needs, but if that were it, then their ministry would fall very, very short. Because people get hungry again. And war happens, and famine happens, and earthquakes happen, and will continue to happen. 
and at the heart of their ministry is partnering with local churches who bring the hope of Jesus Christ first and foremost and meet the physical needs as they do that. You and I have that same call. Meet needs this Christmas. Donate, give, support, feed, all of those things. But help people find real joy through the only place where real and lasting joy is found, and that's in Jesus Christ. And finally, we should be a people who live in joyful anticipation. Because, if we're honest, the best part of Christmas wasn't really the presents. The presents were great. But looking back, we don't have many of those left, do we? But what do we have? The memories of the anticipation. The best part of Christmas was waiting for Christmas morning, knowing that it would come. It was the countdowns with those silly little paper, you know, tear-off ring calendars. It was the Advent things that you opened every day. It was seeing the decorations come up. It was that day that you would go to see the Christmas lights. It was preparing. It was trying to sleep the night before. All of that wrapped up was really the joy and knowing that something was coming. And it might seem a little silly to say, like, that you and I can live our lives like kids waiting for Christmas morning. Because after all, we're big boys and girls with real problems, aren't we? We've got jobs to keep. We've got bills to pay. We've got inflation to deal with. We've got doctors to go to. We've got people that we struggle with. We have real cares, real concerns, real troubles. And sometimes knowing what's coming tomorrow doesn't exactly fill us with joy and anticipation. But again, it's because my perspective is too low. My field of view is too close. What are we anticipating? We sing about it, we talk about it, don't we? Joy to the world, why? The Lord has come, let earth receive her king. You realize that song looks forward, not backward? Where's our joy? It's in what is coming. And you and I have the ability and the opportunity to wake up every day and whatever is going to come that day, at the end of the day, you know what is absolutely true? We're one day closer. We don't have the paper rings to count down, but we do have the chain of God's promises that he has been faithful to pursue every century of human existence. And if he has always been faithful, then we know that he'll be faithful to return. And you and I get to live in light of that. You and I get to live in light of the fact that knowing that we are going to wake up tomorrow one day older, one day sore, one day busier, one day more exhausted, and one day closer to the time when none of that matters. Because we are that much closer to the fullness of joy in the presence of Christ at whose right hand there are pleasures forever. Let's pray. God, forgiving us, forgive us for being a people who are so quick to trade in our joy for worry, so quick to trade in your promises for the worries of the world, so quick to trade in our eternal perspective for a short view of what we're working through. And Lord, we recognize that there are real difficulties that people even in this room face, heartbreaking circumstances and situations. Lord, I pray that you would make us a people who are joyful, not trite, not covered with flimsy phrases of kind of passing happiness, but a people who find real joy in who you are and what you've done, 
God, remind us of the truths of who you are. Open our eyes continually, day by day. Stir our consciences. Drive our perspective forward so that we find the fullness of our joy in you and you alone. We do praise you. We do thank you. We do pray, Lord, come quickly. We anticipate that advent, that coming of the King, and we know that you'll be faithful. Amen.